All right, everybody, welcome back to the Codex West podcast. Uh, I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mark Lula. Yo, yo, what's up? And Johnny... Oh, <laughs> never mind, that yeah, fucking idiot's no. not here. <laughs> he's he's too busy, you know, going and doing the whole Sundance thing. Yeah, he's... A, a whole lot of stuff, yeah. I, basically, I'm very jealous, and I'm very... Um, I have a lot of animosity towards Johnny now. That's the theme of this podcast, is I'm mad that I'm not there doing what Johnny's doing. Mostly, we just get to do whatever we want on the podcast now that Mind Fuhrer is gone, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Johnny is, uh, in the words of Bus Driver, getting jiggy at Sundance with no pants on. So, that leaves it, us. Of, of, of Bus Driver 1, like, you know, somebody you surveyed? No, no, no. Bus Driver is a rapper. <laughs> why, why would I survey a bus driver? <laughs> I thought you were about to tell me a story about how, like, you know, Johnny was on a bus taking a bus to Sundance and the bus no. driver was like you don't get chicken with it <laughs> Sundance with no like, pants on yeah. yeah nope um so it's just gonna be Mark and I today and I guess this will like uh remember if, if you'll remember listeners dear listeners uh months ago I was supposed to do a cooking podcast called cooking with codex um and it never ended up happening because right around the time that I was going to record it I started working like 16 hour days so uh, we're going to do a food episode today about authenticity and, and what authenticity means in the world of cuisine. Hot button question. It is. Nowadays. It really is. Yeah, yeah um, but it like seriously is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not only is it like a, like a hot button question, it's also just like um, it's become a buzzword. It's like right up there with organic, raw, cage-free. Like authentic is the mm-hmm. like the cultural equivalent to, to those words where it's like there's some – idea of like food being this pure like holistic product of like only one set of processes which yeah, like i think is origin, like exactly right? yeah. I, yeah i think there's like merit to that but it's also it can also just be really harmful so um you said that you just found like a kind of a i i'm in addition to this podcast i wrote a whole article that is going to accompany this because i started <laughs> writing like notes for this podcast and realized that i just had way too much that i wanted to say so uh, I'm going to let you start it off with, with what it is that you, like, what you wanted to lead off on. Totally. So um, when I first started, when we first, like, came up with the idea of, okay, let's do authenticity as a question in cuisine. Because, like, I mean, as Jacob said, I really agree. I mean, it's totally like a hot button thing, right? It's, it's, uh, um, it's up there with all of those other buzzwords to get you to come into a restaurant. Exactly. And um, one of the things is that when you start talking about authentic, you have to kind of start. Um, I think that many times what happens is that people use the word authentic as kind of a placeholder for the word traditional. Right. Right. Um, because I think that authenticity, and I th- I'm sure we'll get into this as we kind of like get into the conversation, um, is, is a little more loaded than traditional because, um, authentic kind of says something about intent, right? And Rather like integrity too, like product. traditional, yeah, traditional just, you know, like when I see the word traditional, I just assume it's like a family restaurant. I don't assume that has anything to do with like the process that are used in the cooking, like what the ingredients, mm-hmm. it, it, it is sort of bereft of intent. Yeah, exactly. Because the idea is that like authenticity can be that, you know, somebody can make something traditional inauthentically. Right. Totally. For example, I think you can I think you can um, kind of 
figure it out, it, like figure that out, uh, you know, a scenario in which that could happen so long as you define authentic uh, in that manner. But so the idea is that I was sitting there kind of thinking about this dichotomy between authentic and traditional. And um, one of the things that I ended up looking up was, uh, so one of my favorite chefs is this guy named Andy Ricker. He's the guy that runs Pock Pock, right? Which is oh, okay, the, cool. Uh, right? So it's, I think he has, uh, there's, you know, the first restaurant was in Portland. There's another one in Brooklyn, which was uh, like near where I used to live. So I've <laughs> We'll have to talk about times. Portland authenticity in a sec, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Perfect. Perfect. But so like um, Andy Ricker, uh, Pock Pock is a, what you might call a traditional or authentic Thai restaurant right mm -hmm. and andy ricker is totally totally not thai right guy <laughs> is like, like that are you sure yeah exactly yeah for, for sure right you know his 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 father wasn't a gi or something like that and that's why he came <laughs> andy ricker but he's actually thai right no that's not the case um he's totally not thai he's you know six foot blonde white guy and um he went to thailand when he was younger, you know, maybe like, uh, like 20 years ago or something like that. I'm yeah, just guesstimating. Right? Probably already. So he went when he was young and in many, you know, many a similar fashion as to what people do nowadays where you go for like, you know, the full moon festival and stuff like that. Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm talking about? So um, he went there and then ended up missing his flight home because he Ooh. decided he was going to stay there and he stayed there for like three years. That's um, super cool. And yeah, seriously. And then on top of that, the guy now goes back to Thailand once or twice a year at like minimum as part of his, you know, process for developing the menu at Pok Pok. Yeah. Right. And so the food that you get at Pok Pok is um, what somebody might reactionarily call traditional Thai food, really traditional. And this guy, you know, he's there's an Anthony Bourdain episode with him in it. And yeah. If yeah. you watch it, you understand, like, you know, he goes up to this little roadside stand where there's this older woman sitting there making this pounded beef, which is, you know, beef that they hit with a big mallet. Yeah. And all of that stuff. Right. And he walks up and it's clear that the woman knows him. Because they start speaking in Thai to each other. He comes back and he starts pounding meat with her, right? She's making <laughs> jokes about how he needs to marry his, uh, marry her daughter, right? And uh -huh. come live with them and work at the stand, right? He's obviously, you know, this guy seems very legit. I, yeah, I guess that yeah. that's the perfect word for it. The guy is super legit. And I'm sitting here contemplating the difference between authenticity and tradition, right? And there's this article that he wrote for Food Republic. So Andy Ricker wrote an article and, you know, it starts out with a sentence basically saying that authentic and traditional are words that he never uses in his restaurants. Right. But so um, I wanted to read a small excerpt that I thought would be uh, like that kind of encapsulate what I think we're going to go for here. So, yeah, go for it to it. Yeah. To attempt to extricate foreign influence in search of something purely Thai would be difficult indeed. To neglect dishes with Chinese influence would be to lose a substantial portion of what we now think of as Thai food, including nearly every noodle dish and everything cooked in a blazing hot wok. Yeah, and of course. without Western influence, there wouldn't be bread or tomatoes, right? Which is, you know, used in Thai food a lot. So perhaps nothing defines Thai food for us Americans like the heat of the chili pepper, right? But... 
the chili came to Thailand with Portuguese traders by way of the New World, somewhere around the 16th century. That means the Thai people had been cooking for millennia before its arrival, employing the heat of peppercorns, galangal, and other spicy flavored herbs. Um, and so, wait, there's one other thing I wanted to say, read, which was, um, people often praise the food that we serve at Pok Pok and my other restaurants as authentic. I'm flattered, but that word and its cousin and compliment, traditional, are banished from my restaurants. The words imply an absolute cuisine, that there is one true Thai food out there somewhere. I once had a cook at Pok Pok who was born in Thailand and who used to look at some dishes on my menu, one I'd eaten dozens of times, one I'd carefully calibrated to be just like the ones that I had in Thailand, and he would scoff. Where are the tomatoes? That dish must have tomatoes. Same goes for other cuisines. Ask 20 Mex Mexican chefs to make tomatillo salsa and you'll get 20 different salsas, right? And I think that that's a good way of kind of presenting this is that these these terms, you know, so I started to think that traditional was a better word than authentic. And then I read this article and I think that that kind of puts the word traditional into suspect light as well. Because what does traditional actually mean? Because, you know, cooking in one province of Thailand versus another province of Thailand can be very different. Similarly, yeah. if you go to like, you know, Oaxaca, right, versus, you know, Jalisco or something like that in Mexico, you're going to get a similar difference of the way that they cook, even when they cook the same dishes. On top of that, though, if you just go to Oaxaca, there are going to be five different ways, you know, or even more of cooking whatever the traditional Oaxacan mole sauce is. I literally, right? I actually had this conversation with a Mexican person today. I was... Uh, really? Yeah, I was telling her that I was... Um, about the, the torta de chilorio that I made the other day. And she said, what is chilorio? And I was like, oh, it's like a... it's a So chilorio is like, um, you take pork and you braise it really slowly over a very long period of time um and then you make this sauce with um reconstituted dried chili so i use guajillo and mulatto um, and chili de arbol and then you reconstitute those you blend them you add vinegar and oregano and then you mix that sauce with melted lard and then you fry the pork in that lard <laughs> Stop, so it's like oh it's su it's like decadent it's it's beautiful but she had oh, never that's an incredible that's an incredible recipe dude it's from that's awesome it's so yeah. good but it's from sinaloa and she would like i guess it's like pretty much exclusive to that area so she'd never even heard of it but it's like very it's a very mexican dish it's like a totally. it is a classic mexican dish and she just never she's from mexico and just literally had never heard of it so that's and I think that, yeah, I think that that kind of also attaches to, you know, maybe it's easier to go, you know, the smaller designation you're talking about. Maybe it's maybe you're able to distill a particular um, the particular construction of a dish. Right. So, totally. like, you know, a traditional Cuban sandwich. Is a oh traditional my, I Cuban sandwich. Did you, did you read the article? Did you read the article? No, I, you know what's so funny? I didn't. But I can't. <laughs> so, yeah, that's I, I like totally it's... forgot. It's so funny I asked you for it because I haven't thought about it since you sent it to me. <laughs> you there? Yeah, I'm there. I'm just sorry. I'm just uh, furious. That's all. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. Oh, uh, but I, I, there's a whole, <laughs> there's a whole section. I, there's like a most of the article is about that, the Cuban. It's about the Cuban that sandwich just, that you just dead aired that shit to Trump. <laughs> yeah, no. that was in retrospect that was hysterical. 
I was thinking that I was going to have to cut out something. Oh, that's not going out. That was ridiculous. I was just going to start incredible. screaming. I can't at believe you. you just like silent treat like treatment me on the podcast. Incredible. Fantastic. So yeah, in the article I go, I talk about the Cuban <laughs> sandwich for for like the the last half of the article is all about the Cuban. Um, Dude, t- why don't you start telling me about that? Okay, so what the um uh, basically the Cuban sandwich is it's it's called the Cuban sandwich, but it's from Tampa, Florida. It was invented. The sandwich was created in Tampa in an immigrant neighborhood called Ybor. Um, By the way, all three of us, all three of us on the podcast, Jacob, Johnny, and myself, are all from Tampa, Florida. So it makes it for yeah. Ybor is like twenty minutes away from where we all grew up. Yeah, exactly. So it's this little, it's this little like uh, town. It's like all the buildings are brick and mortar or like brownstones, basically. Um, and it was an immigrant neighborhood in like the the early like 1900s all the way up to the 30s um and there's this sandwich called the cuban so i'm gonna go ahead and excerpt from my own article here so let's do it um so the cuban sandwich is it's these thick fatty chunks of mojo roasted pork shoulder uh mojo for anybody that doesn't know or isn't familiar with cuban cuisine is um you take the juice of sour orange um garlic peppercorn a little bit of vinegar depending on the recipe and this is another like <laughs> the yeah, mojo itself like, is know, a whole yeah. point of debate like in the cuban community totally. um and then you have all that you have sliced ham um pickled cucumber and a smear of mustard and some melted garlic butter on a hot flat pressed crunchy piece of bread um and you usually eat it with like little fried potato sticks not like big french fries just the little tiny ones if you're if you've ever been around a hispanic person you'll know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah um, exactly for sure it is sublime uh, the Cuban sandwich is probably <laughs> the best sandwich. Not just having grown up in... T- I've eaten a lot of fucking sandwiches. The Cuban sandwich is, is probably the best sandwich. Um, it's it's really so good, man. It's so much more than the sum of its parts. You yep, know what I mean? I, like, you really end up with something divine. Yeah, and it's but it's not from Cuba. It's it's from Ybor. Um, and it's... So Ybor itself was the city that's super deeply rooted in, in the history of its occupants. It's this confluence of Spaniards, of Cubans, and Italians... Um, but it's not Cuba. So <laughs> the fact that this sandwich <laughs> came from this neighborhood that is the sandwich itself is clearly a confluence of other like, um, contributing factors. So you have like the ham in it. If you look at, if you look at just the construction of a Cuban sandwich, it's basically like your classic pastrami on rye minus rye plus roast pork. Like it's, a. Uh, well, it's also that, you know, the other thing to say about Cuban food generally is that you can go and get a Cuban ham sandwich or a lechon sandwich. Yeah, exactly. Right? And then, then there's and like it's clear that somebody was like, you know, late at night, really hungry and a little drunk went, oh, I'm going to put it together. And then, you know, threw everything on it and it ended up becoming something. Yep. Right. That now literally, you know, is probably the most definitive dish in Floridian Food. Well, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Key lime pie is key lime Second. pie for sure. But, so, yeah, but key, yeah, lime key lime pie is a disgrace. So it's so funny because well, hey, hey, no, key lime pie is so hey, fucking hey, good. no, stop Dude, that. Fuck you. You're crazy. But okay, yeah, go on. Cuban sandwich. Um. Oh, where was it? So, but if you look at if you look at the Cuban sandwich, there's a there's now like debate on what the the authenticity of a Cuban sandwich, not just. The, the debate on the Cuban sandwich now is, like, what is a Cuban sandwich? Because, exactly like Mark was saying, yeah. now there's all these different, like, varieties. You have media noche, which is basically just a Cuban on softer bread. Um, well, yeah, on egg bread. Yeah. It's sweet egg bread. Yeah. Um, and then you have all these other – because the Cuban sandwich is so iconic, it inevitably becomes prey to the same thing as, like, banh mi. 
where you just have all of mm-hmm. these restaurants that will pick up the idea of the sandwich and then just add all of these different parts and flavors. And at some point you have to ask yourself, is this still a Cuban sandwich? Um, For sure. And the, the Cuban itself. So that's kind of the, the ongoing debate of the Cuban sandwich. I'm sure there's like documentaries about it too. But <laughs> yeah. if you look at, if you look deeper into Cuban cuisine now, just outside of the Cuban sandwich, which again is not an invention of Cuba. So like the authenticity of the sandwich itself is sort of dubious. It's authentically a Tampa sandwich. Yeah, it's but authentically even, Floridian. Yeah. Like, that's the thing that I love to think about it like that, especially because Florida, I mean, in, you know, kind of the stereotype of Florida being ultra influenced by Cuban culture is very true south of, you know, Tampa and Orlando. Right. So you start going south of there and it's obviously, you know, it's ultra it's, present. Yeah. You know, I live in Miami. Right. And so it's, uh, you know, like Miami is Little Little Havana is the name of the neighborhood where I go to get really great Cuban sandwiches. And it's like literally the southernmost point of Florida is 90 90 miles away from Cuba. You can almost see it from the Key West is 90 miles from Cuba. Yeah. So. Yeah. So there's a there's a very real relationship there. But nevertheless, the Cuban sandwich isn't Cuban. But if you look at Cuba today as a country, it's devastated economically so you have this country that like, the monthly average wage of a cuban citizen is 16 dollars. so the whole country monthly. subsists yeah. on a ration system um but the ration it's it's basically food stamps but they only give you access to like rice and sugar and matches and oil and beans so you have this country with this rich culinary tradition um because it is a, it's a caribbean nation too so you have this you have all of the influence from spanish occupation all of these classic dishes, mm-hmm. like, um, I don't know, think of some, like, what are the most, like, uh, ropa vieja. Um, oh, yeah, uh, palomilla. Yep. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, yeah, totally. And, and I mean, in Cuban cuisine, you see it by the use of olives, right? Y- yep. So Cubans use a lot of Spanish, like, real old Spanish-style olives in things, you know, particularly palomilla. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and then everything I mean, the, else from yeah. like a, that you'd expect from a, a Spanish. You have frijoles negros and arroz con pollo. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they marry them to these tropical like Caribbean flavors. So it's like, uh, you know, Spain lots by of way planting. of Jamaica. So, yeah, you see lots of like cumin and naranja agria, um, mm-hmm. all these spice blends that, that are not necessarily even accessible for the, the nations that these dishes came from. Dude, you want to know why? Wait, this is so funny that we're talking about this right now. You want to know why this is? there is this kind of influence? So, for example, why do people in Jamaica eat curry? Right? I actually have no That's idea. A pre- yeah. Okay, right? Isn't that bizarre? I've always wondered that because I thought it was completely insane. Do you know or are you a lot just of asking cur- a question? <laughs> oh, no, I actually do. I actually do. Oh, okay, so cool. what Thank happened God. was that... Um, so after the British Empire outlawed slavery, okay, there were a whole lot of newly freed Africans living in the Caribbean, okay? And mm-hmm. when the plantations would want to start, uh, start back up production, but without using slave labor, right? The slaves were starting to try and like, st- they were starting their own businesses. They were having their own, um, you know, their own economics, Right. You know, people started becoming butchers for all of the other slaves, you know, ex-slaves that lived in their town and all. Right, right, right. And the plantation owners would try to essentially get the, uh, you know, the newly freed slaves to go and still work on these plantations. And 
you know, being defiant, we're obviously like, no, no way. You know, we're, we're doing this, we're fishing, we're living our whole lives, you know, right? And so the British Empire had to try to, you know, probably specifically like, you know, the East India Trading Company or, you know, whatever yeah. company the British Empire had designated to do work in the Caribbean, right? And so they ended up importing labor from India and from East Asia, right? So, for example, these these plantations grew sugarcane, okay? And Indian people have been growing sugarcane for millennia, mm -hmm. okay? And so they were able to get Indian people who were living in, you know, relative poverty or, like, you know, being enticed with um, information about, like, you know, this particularly industrialized, yeah. you know, newly industrialized place called Jamaica, okay? And so they ended up being able to bring tons and tons of essentially you know immigrant workers they would bring them from india pay them very little and have them work on plantations uh, essentially as indentured servants yeah working on the plantations that uh, sounds like the Jamaica, british empire yeah right and, and so this is exactly right this is totally on brand but the thing is that that's why you will see both um you know, you see curry as a prevalent thing in a lot of Caribbean countries, particularly, you know, Trinidad and uh, Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica and Barbados and like that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but on top of that, this is also why if you've ever spent time in New York or, you know, in probably like Chicago, or other cities like that, there are these Chinese Cuban places that will serve Chinese food and Cuban food. Why? Because similar to Indians, the, the Chinese ended up actually getting brought to the brought to the Caribbean to uh, do work on the plantations on very little money as indentured servants by the British Empire, who were now out of work because you know out of labor because uh, African slaves would no longer work for the people who tortured them. Huh. <laughs> so Fancy that's that. actually why that's that's curry in Jamaica, and that's why you see Chinese Cuban restaurants. Isn't that nuts? Huh. That's super cool. I had no idea about any of that. So that's why you see cumin in Cuban cooking is because that whole like concept came from that South makes Asia. a lot of sense, right? So on back to back to the, uh, the, <laughs> yeah, I uh, thought that was a good aside. <laughs> no, no, that was a good that was a good, and you brought yeah. it right back to Cuba. Mm -hmm. So now you have all of these these dishes that are no longer Cuban people can't cook this food anymore because they don't have access to it. They don't have access to cumin. They don't have access to meat most of the time um so now what is 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 authentically cuban food now just like rice and beans and oil like is that you know what at what point i think the one of the the questions that we can ask for the for the sake of authenticity and the pursuit of authenticity is um if you want to call something authentic do you have to designate like what period of time specifically that that food comes from because all of these dishes the have same thing, yeah. like there's a progression right you can definitely look mm -hmm. food as like a historical document is valid i think um totally yeah yeah so, like it's like oral tradition almost yeah completely right? <laughs> yeah because yeah, it goes in your mouth um, <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> that's that was a really corny dad joke but i appreciate it hey like man you won't stop will you <laughs> <laughs> corny mouth um so is is preservation itself like a, an authentic act like a um if you have these these cuban dishes like ropa vieja that you now can't cook in cuba anymore 
Is it the responsibility of Cuban-Americans or Cubans in other parts of the world to preserve those traditions? Or do we look at Cuba now and say, well, that's Cuban food is what they have? That wasn't rhetorical. Oh, oh, that was okay. Uh, I thought I thought you were going to keep going. No, totally. So that's that's a um, a very interesting question. And when I was thinking about it, I started to realize that, like, um, in many ways, when we talk about uh, when we talk about you know a traditional food or like an authentic food of a particular culture, we start looking to people who identify as that culture or being from that culture, right? Right. So the way you're asking about like, is it about time period? Is it about location? What, you know, the kind of answer I started to develop was that it was about um, uh, it was about what people identify with. Okay. So I'll give a good example. Um, I come from. A, a big, loud New York Italian family, right? Um, my mother's side of the family. My father is not Italian. My father is <laughs> I was going to say Quivola, you know, an Ita- yeah, a classic no, 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 Italian no. My last name. name, it's so, it's very funny. Yeah, my last name is Quivola, which is Finnish. And um, I, you know, also come from like a long lineage of, of uh, American people, like revolutionary American people on my grandmother's side, on my father's side. But here's the thing. So I actually grew up mainly as having a kind of uh, like mainly in an Ita- you know, Italian American household because my mother's family was always the closest to us, uh, both in proximity and in, you know, the, how much time we spent together, how much influence we had on each other. And so it was a kind of promulgation of the Italian American experience. You know, I do the seven fishes on New Year's Eve. Right. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. On Christmas Eve, I misspoke. But so I do the seven fishes on Christmas Eve with my family, which is incredible. I mean, it's seriously outrageous. We make this big pot of of, uh, saffron pasta with lots and lots and lots of uh, good seafood bits. And so we have, you know, all of this Italian-American heritage, right? Now, I eat things like, I mean, my mom never got into it, which is very funny because my mom grew up with, you know, Italian immigrant parents. She never liked things like chicken parmesan. For example, right? But I fucking love chicken parmesan, right? Yeah, that's and a, I consider that's a that part of like, of like my a upbringing. Thoroughly and Americanized what Italian dish too. Totally, and it's and to call it even American, you know what's so fucked up about it? This is another thing that I'll say. So yeah, I guess it's Americanized, right? Quote unquote, right? But the truth of the matter is that there's nothing, there's nothing about chicken parmesan that would not fit into no. It's to- it's like definitely Italian cooking. Within the Do you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right? completely. That's kind. Of, that's how I totally. feel about like Chinese food too. That like Chinese, like Chinese takeout is like so obviously like Chinese influence. But like if you've ever eaten actual Chinese food, it's so unlike. It's it draws. It's like all of the same ingredients put together in ways that are like almost creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. it's like a little terrifying. <laughs> But uh, because it's like clearly the Chinese are like superior race that have identified what stupid Americans want to eat. So it's like, all right, well, let's take all of these like delicious sauces and like MSG, which we've always used. And then uh, let's like fry some chicken, (laughs) like call it a day. (laughs) And then just toss it all in that shit, right? Yeah. And uh, throw it all together. Yeah. They'll fucking eat it. Just throw it together, dude. They yeah. love it. <laughs> yeah. And and actually, it's funny that you mentioned Chinese food because the other thing is that, you know, who like obviously for the Jewish American population, particularly in big cities like this may not be the experience 
of of uh, Jewish American people uh, kind of outside of the old enclaves, right? But yeah. definitely, if you talk to New York City Jews, and I mean, you talk to my girlfriend Brittany is Jewish, and her family eats Chinese food on Christmas. That's like a whole thing. Oh, totally. Right? Yeah, it's like part but, of uh, the on American Jew that, identity. Like, it, but it's not – and then if you go to these old Jewish communities, it's not just about eating Chinese on Christmas, which is like a fun Jewish-American tradition. Like Hasidic Jews and Orthodox Jews in New York eat Chinese food often. Why? Because in many ways Chinese food is kosher, right? Sure, yeah. And Chinese restaurant really, you know what I mean? So long yeah, as you're yeah, not yeah. ordering it with shrimp, okay? They don't cook with, you know, like shellfish sauce or things like that. There's no cheese mixed, you know, no dairy at all. Right. And so it's a way uh, it was a way for Jewish Americans living in big cities to be able to get uh, takeout food that kind of fit their outline of, uh, uh, you know, eating uh, parameters. But on top of that, it's also that like you see Chinese places advertising as kosher in New York. Huh. Right. Which is, you know, something so bizarre. Yeah, so then is weird. like Chinese food traditionally Jewish American, right? I, you know, it's hard to define exactly like what you mean. Obviously, it's Yeah, not. that's like, I think a, a, a good way to like phrase that question generally is like, yeah. uh, is authenticity more about like audience now? Like, is it, uh, if, if we're like looking at authenticity from the perspective of, I think like we've uh-huh. sort of been trying to establish that authenticity like pure authenticity like food as a pure historical document like there's it's impossible to achieve like authenticity true authenticity in a specific dish there's no like correct one way i mean there's clearly a set of processes and like rules but there's no clear-cut one perfect uh like way to prepare any given dish so then the question is like uh if we've already eliminated that idea as being plausible then authenticity could become about intent, about authorial intent, and about um, who you're cooking for. Which brings us to another totally. kind of like a, a possible aside. Um, what about um, the way that food is eaten, like the the ritual of food eating? That definitely mm-hmm. plays into the authenticity of certain dishes. You have like a you don't oh. eat hot pot alone. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, there are sure. way like hot pot can certainly be prepared for a single person, but that's not traditionally ever how it's, it's eaten. It's it's like a family meal. Yeah. Or like traditional Korean uh, meals. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like you just have like twenty banchan with your yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting. I actually had not thought of that. Like the idea of uh, dining ritual. Yeah, because there's nothing like I mean, there's nothing it, authentic about like yeah. one big fat guy going into a Korean barbecue place and you know like getting all you can eat meat and eating twenty <laughs> banchan by himself. There's like there's something about that that's like not just sad but inauthentic. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Certainly he's being true to himself, but like the restaurant could totally. also say no. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> makes I, you absolutely. Think. I mean, I guess that's also you can kind of think about it like um, if you, you know Italian food. You know, traditional or authentic Italian meal has what is it, seven or nine courses? Yeah, I like forget. it's a ridiculous. Like the antipasto, yeah. the segunda, and the primo. You know what I mean? Um, and so yeah, there and the, is the like you know, and the bongiorno. Is... What was that? The, the, the principessa and the bongiorno. Yeah, and the digiorno. <laughs> yeah, <I'm sure. laughs> digiorno, prego, <laughs> <laughs> prego, prego, prego. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, but prego, 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 prego. <laughs> 
But so, yeah, it's um, I think that you are definitely on to something talking about like the dining uh, culture. I was also thinking that like is authentic about so cooking cuisine generally. Okay. Yeah. Is more often than not craft and not art. Okay. True. So I would like agree when you know yeah. right, I think that I think that like cooking is much more akin to like metallurgy than it is to painting. Yeah. But uh, some 100%. people right? But some people weld, you know, statues that are meant to be art and not the craft. Right. But food welding. is almost They're, never decorative. I mean, like, certainly there are, yeah. like, aesthetic elements that are important to and And any cuisine. good restaurant, but here's the thing, not just, it, you're, you're right, though, you put it perfectly. It, you know, food should never be um, decorative, yeah. right? Just because it takes into account its aesthetic quality does not mean that, you know, you, oh, you can't eat that flour on the plate, for example, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if, um, it, if it, that's if it like, can't be incorporated yeah. into the dish, it's like... The beauty of food is that even if you perceive it as art, it's like a, it's you art of born of utility. Everybody has to eat. So totally. like, um, yeah, any any element of a dish that can't be eaten is superfluous. It it sort of denies the entire purpose of the dish. Dude, and you know what? So oh my god, I just remembered this idea. We're also kind of talking around the thing. I mean, um, uh, what's his name? Paul Bacuse died recently you saw this right no i didn't oh my god paul Bacuse, who is the father of nouvelle cuisine right and i mean well at least like so paul Bacuse was part of um this group of like 12 or 13 chefs um in the i think it was in the 60s mm-hmm. maybe the 70s 60s and 70s right is when what we think of as nouvelle cuisine yeah, began, yeah, yeah which is you know the kind of reimagining of traditional french cuisine um into what you know when you go to a modern uh french restaurant and you get something with this like very beautiful presentation it's served to you in many courses right yeah all of those kinds of concepts developed from Nouvelle it's cuisine. what it's what we and, see now is like fine dining, like the French idea of fine dining. Yes, these are, these are the guys that kind of paved the way for people like Thomas Keller. Um, and 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 who's the guy that owns Noma? I, I I've the guy that owns you. Sorry, you cut out for a sec. No, oh, Noma. Noma is uh, Rene Rezepi. Yeah, Rene yeah, Rezepi. Yeah. But so like all of what we think of is kind of the modern um, kind of uh, like aesthetic artistic chef. Okay, that all that whole concept developed from this group of chefs, uh, primarily headed in many ways um, through their through his cultural significance. Paul Bacuse became like the definition of Lyonnaise cuisine for, you know, the last uh, 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And he recently died just a few days ago, like, you know, earlier this week, maybe on Wednesday. Yeah, I had no idea. Rest in pepperonis. Yeah, exactly. Rest in pepperonis. But so the thing is that it is. Um, it's funny we're having this conversation about authenticity and tradition when, uh, you know, when this happened, it kind of put in light for me the way to talk about this because Nouvelle Cuisine was kind of frowned upon by many older French chefs, right? Like French food is always, you know, the French have always had a um, a, uh, a taste for the refined 
uh, cuisine for the totally, food. and that you even see that in like domain designation stuff like champagne. I want to talk about that. In oh a my bit, god, I was about to. This yeah. is so funny. Yep, absolutely. That's exactly what I want to. After this, I want to talk about exactly that, because the thing is that with French cooking, um, the French have kind of always found themselves to be. Uh, um, champions of refined cooking technique and refined sure if, if any one cuisine right? is going to like uh have ideas about authenticity french cuisine probably has to be like that's what we it, should it, be looking to it's a perfect example because yeah. i mean it's what you learn in most american cooking schools for example right? yeah yep yep, yep. you know it, like the taught vast by majority really of sad hotel chefs are... who have been like burnt out but it is french cuisine nonetheless yeah absolutely <laughs> but so the thing is that um you know when you now think about French cuisine, when we think about French cuisine, many, a whole lot of what you and I imagine as authentic French cuisine, right? If we had to like participate with that word, if I had to imagine those dishes, yeah, they're probably products of the Nouvelle movement. Yeah, right. Totally. That's a rather than like, actually. I've never really thought about that, but you're 100% emblematic. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Rather than them being emblematic of what one might think French cuisine was for the hundred years that built it into what I believe it to be now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So, like, I mean, there's yeah. certainly, there's like a culinary tradition of like haughtiness there, but like if you go to France and ask the average like French home cook in the countryside what the five mother sauces are, they'll probably ask you to leave. <laughs> those are like, those are like very yeah, like sure, totally. instructional, like Americanization of French cuisine ideas. Like the, well, how about that this rigor, like institutionalization? I think, is like, I think like institutionalization. To- that's because a much I better bet, word, yeah, yeah, right. I bet you that French cooking schools are very similar in that way. Like yeah, they there's gr- the, like, the regard yeah. for, for like authenticity is, is rigor. Not necessarily but it's also hard. it's also but, about practice because it's the same way of like learning jazz standards. Like you learn yeah. the five mother sauces because they are the base technique for so many other things that you'll do and other right. creations that you'll make. But you need to know how to make bechamel to be able to make preserved lemon bechamel or something yeah. like that. Do you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? It's improvisation yeah. born of those other you know like the base elements. It's like yeah, it's foundational those teachings. Things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but so I was just saying that Nouvelle, I think it's very interesting that when we think about French food nowadays, we many times imagine Nouvelle cuisine. And France, as you were about to say while I was talking, what I'll give back to you, is like maybe authenticity deals with like ingredients, right? Yeah. And there's definitely a case to be made for that. I think it's hard to like translate that argument into other cultures and, and certain dishes. It doesn't necessarily like jive with, but... Yeah. In in France, and you see this in, in, in Italy too, really throughout all of Europe, there are mm-hmm. products that we have in America that aren't – so like champagne is, a, is an excellent example. And what I kind of want to pivot this into is the ways in which authenticity can be harmful and the ways in which like the word authenticity can kind of be used as like a, uh, an instrument of commerce rather than like truth. Um, and you know what's so funny? I was about to I was about to say that like the use of authenticity to describe things that really are from those places. I was about I, I was going to say that that's like the good use of it. Yeah, right? yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah, like totally go on for it. Yeah, okay. You're right. So champagne for if you if you've had champagne in the United States that was not from the region champagne in France, champagne refers to a fortified sparkling wine that is made from grapes from champ it is made from champagne grapes in champagne france if 
it doesn't france has a um it's i'm trying to think of well the, the eu has the law yeah right? it's like, d- like domain the authenticity or something like that where if yeah, like if um if the if you call a product champagne and it doesn't meet those specifications it is unlawful to call that product champagne however we yeah. don't have those regulations in the u.s so you see that with champagne that's made domestically you see that with uh Stuff like Parmesan Reggiano that's not made in Parmesan isn't Parmesan. Yeah, exactly. It's not Parmesan cheese. Um, now, in some ways, I think that those institutions are like they're holdovers from a time where, you know, food wasn't global. But also, they are institutions nonetheless, and they've existed for hundreds of years. So it's like uh, it's kind of shitty not to honor them. But in a in a, in a global economy where you know commerce is sort of like the be all end all, food is subject to that too. So that brings mm-hmm. us to the question of like, um, is authenticity? What at where do we draw the line of like when we shouldn't when is it valuable? in something yeah. because it's inauthentic, right? Like, totally. should you just stop buying? you know, craft shaky cheese because it's not real Parmesan? No, because it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> that would be stupid. Yeah, that would be really dumb. How would you ever eat popcorn? <laughs> yeah, Do you ever put you... that shit on popcorn? So on good. popcorn? <laughs> seriously? Out- Holy dude, shit. I don't even, I don't like popcorn, outrageous. but that'd probably make me love it. You know what's, oh, you know what's so funny? I, I, I don't like popcorn either, but Brittany really does. And one time we got um, mixed colored kernels from the farmer's market, like dried kernels. I gotta I tell you, best popcorn mixed. I ever had changed my whole fucking opinion about it. Never buy it in a bag, buy dry kernels and it's dry multicolored but, popcorn kernels. Okay. Duly noted. Dude, I'm telling you, they're so sweet. It's incredible. I mean, it really makes a difference. I was super skeptical. I was like, there's no fucking way that after I put this in the microwave or in a pan with a little oil, that it's going to taste any different than regular popcorn kernels. <laughs> Boy, it really, really does. Wrong. It makes a, it's amazing. I was wrong. But so, yeah, you're totally right. Like, you know, I think that, when it comes down to it, there's something. So, for example, when you talk about Parmesan, right? The word Parmesan kind of describes, for particularly for Americans, kind of the wide variety of Parmesan cheeses that we have available to us. I think that there's something to be said for, like, maybe protecting particular labels. Like, maybe you can't call it Parmesan Reggiano unless it's actually Reggiano. Yeah, right? that just makes From sense. That, Right. That makes. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's just common sense. But the other thing about it is when you were talking about champagne, I think it does make sense to like, you know, champagne refers to grapes. Right. Chianti refers to grapes. Pinot Noir. Like these are all specific. grape. Anytime you see some people, I guess, don't know this, but anytime that you see a wine that has a specific like nomenclature, it refers to the grape varietal used to make that wine. Yeah. So Zinfandel, exactly. Pinot Noir, those are all types of grapes that are that happen to be used mm. in the process of making the specific. Yeah, wine Pinot Grigio, like everything that you're, everything that you buy, um, it comes from the grapes. And you know what's actually incredible? I'm going to tell you something amazing. So there was, um, okay, so about like you know a hundred years ago, like early 1900s, late 1800s. Um, the uh, you know people started growing grapes in California. Okay. Yeah. That kind of began the whole like Napa, you know, Northern California grape yep. industry was, you know, a hundred years ago, maybe 140, 140, you know, 150 years ago or however long. So 
when they started the vineyards in Northern California, many of the people who were starting those projects were like outrageously wealthy, right? To the point that they could have imported and preserved grapes from Europe, okay? Now, so the people in California ordered grape seeds from these vineyards in, you know, like ordered Let's uh, say champagne. Uh, champagne grape yeah. seeds from Champagne and uh, Chianti um, seeds Cultural. from Chianti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. exactly. The correct cultivars and everything like that. Okay. So they bring all of this to California. They start the, the vineyards, Cal- you know, and California becomes um, uh, known for growing wine. Incredibly, sometime after the um after the varietals had been uh implanted into california and there was like you know a growing grape industry coming out of california there was a major blight across grapes in europe oh yep right so there was this you know a massive massive outbreak of some kind of blight or maybe i'm misremembering the exact mechanism it might have been a really bad winter like who knows right i i, no, I, I think it was sure. a blight I'm but i do sure know this it, yeah. yeah i know this narrative to be correct i just don't know what the mechanism yeah, is yeah, yeah. right so a bunch of grapes in europe die okay and people can't go and recultivate the plants okay uh, you know it was blight and not all the seeds are fucked up or something like that okay and a whole lot of grapes got re-imported back from California to Europe to restart those vineyards, right? So when you go and you get champagne, the champagne grape that your champagne is made of very well might have come actually from California after being planted in California yeah, the, and the grown mother, over however many seasons mommy. and, you know, tailored and all of that kind of stuff. And so it's it's funny because I think that um, I think that you know this is a really good example. So, Roquefort cheese, right? Roquefort. Oh, I forget. I don't know how you pronounce it in French. Uh, Roquefort. Roquefort. Who knows? Yeah. Roque, Roque, Roquefort. Uh, That's it, that Roquefort. Point, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, exactly. Rocky Road. No, Roquefort. Yeah. 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 Roquefort. So Roquefort cheese has to be ripened in these caves, of right? Roquefort, these particular yeah. caves in Roquefort. Right. It's the area. Right. And the whole thing is that these caves have a particular um, microbial flora that defines the product. Right. Yep. You see this in so, beer, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. like, like, I mean, uh, in Cantillon. 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 I love yeah, I love, I love, I love pronouncing. <laughs> there is see, nothing more. Well, I have a friend. I have a friend that looks Cantillon. at. Um, I have a friend that pronounced tapatio. So like, you know, tapatio hot sauce. He goes yeah, yeah, to Pesci. He goes to Pesio. <laughs> no, as a joke, he's from San Francisco. He grew oh, up eating God. the stuff and calling it tapatio. <laughs> so but he calls it to Pesio. How funny is that, right? I'm pretty to sure Pesci. I heard that pronunciation unironically too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have. To. So similar, like Cantillion. Yeah, Cantillon. Yeah. Cantillion. <laughs> I'm gonna have to put you on a don't drink beer after the podcast. There's a maybe that'll just be my recommendation. There's a comedian that like your recommendation is gonna be about, a beer. Uh, he he he's like probably the premier beer reviewer, but he's also a comedian, and he he just like uh, he makes these YouTube videos where he just gets absolutely plastered and like ruins 
some of the best beers in the world. <laughs> there was there's one where he like he takes a he takes a Goose Island's Cthulhu, which I think there were like maybe 120 bottles made, and he mm-hmm. pours it into a percolator, puts the percolator on top of his stove, turns it on, and then throws a bunch of squid in. <laughs> <laughs> like while while he's like making fun of it the whole time it's absurd but not to get too oh too God. i will introduce you to it after this but i don't want to get too uh too tangential here okay yeah that was that's just really incredible but oh my bringing God. it okay. back like these are uh i think that we see this as a big problem in america um the ways in which authenticity that is can be used to harm existing institutions because we don't have mm. regional institutions in America to, to anywhere near that degree you have um, I want I definitely want to talk about American authenticity I think one of the best examples and one that maybe most of our listeners will be familiar with because it's kind of what's happening right now is hot chicken um, in Tennessee uh, hot chicken I, was, I thought you were gonna say barbecue but yeah nope. hot <laughs> uh, although <laughs> barbecue is definitely like barbecue, Bar- barbecue has is obviously its own, the great American cuisine yeah barbecue in, like, has absolute a whole culture honesty, that's the most refined cooking that gets done in America is by what gets that done that is by quintessentially barbecues. American absolutely yeah. agree absolutely but hot chicken's probably a little bit easier because you can actually we have the uh, the luxury of being able to like pinpoint its historicity where yeah um, the legend of hot chicken is a uh, guy in Nashville um, cheats on his girlfriend. His girlfriend's really upset with him, and she cooks him this chicken um, that she's fried in lard that she's just dumped a bunch of cayenne pepper in. So it's cayenne <laughs> and vinegar, um, and it's mixed into this lard, and then you, you double fry the chicken. You uh, brine the chicken overnight in hot sauce. Then you... <laughs> So you, you brine the chicken in hot sauce, then you, for like a day, yeah, and then you fry it once, and then you take it out, and then you cover it, you like, basically douse it in lard that's been, uh, like, filled with cayenne, and then you fry it again. So it's unbelievably, it is, hot chicken is, true hot it's chicken is a religious hot. experience. It will, it is unbelievably delicious but you will shit fire for at least a day it is yeah, and like, jacob and i are like painful. people that are really into hot food right like yeah. you really oh, yeah, like yeah. spicy food right you can yeah you can absolutely eat really spicy shit but that right? shit is like the the yeah, maximum outrageous. hotness of so anyways hot chicken yeah. is, <laughs> hot chicken was born in nashville and it's a product of a restaurant called prince's that's where the the, the original hot chicken recipe comes from so now you have this other restaurant in um, Nashville called Hattie B's. And Hattie B's has sort of taken Prince's hot chicken recipe and made it commercial. They've, you know, franchised. So I think there's still only one Prince's restaurant, but Hattie B's is all over the place now. Um, mm-hmm. And that Hattie B's has brought hot chicken to the forefront of the, like, southern cooking, um, I, I don't know, schema and yeah. has Fine. sort of like made it public this you know for a while for a long time for decades oh, oh, hot that, chicken oh, was sort yeah, of like it's southern a, it was exclusively southern, a nashville yeah. institution but now hot chicken mm. is like becoming a phenomenon so totally. net i think net positive like it's really cool to have a dish with a, an explicit history that's like very american um, that's like rooted in these ideals of a, of a specific place. I think it's really cool that that's getting attention. But on the downside, um, Prince's, and I think this is largely like 
the owners want to keep it local. Um, but Hattie B's has taken Prince's, like, what made that restaurant its thing and uh, and taken it away and then commercialized it and, and multiplied it and made it... Um, I don't know. It's just like the <laughs> the problem of yeah, capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I, guess. I, get, I totally get what you mean. So um, it, like, th- it, yeah. it sucks for princes, but at the same mm-hmm. time, like, is that is this an example of authenticity like being used against uh, like our idea of authenticity? Because hot chicken is hot chicken, right? It doesn't have for to sure. come from from princes necessarily to be hot chicken. It's like yeah. because we know the history of it and because we have an exact idea of what the original recipe is. Um, it gives us a template to work from where anybody can say they make authentic hot chicken. But is true authentic hot chicken, does it have to come from Prince's? Does it have to come from its birthplace since that birthplace still exists? Are we sort of obligated institutionally by, you know, our our ideas of, like, history? Um, Mm -hmm. Are we obligated to consider only Prince's hot chicken to be the authentic hot chicken? So I think that that's, I think that's funny because like, I was trying to think of when you said that I was like, there has to be an example of a particular dish that I can think of that has to come from one place, right? There has to be, right? And I started going through like pastrami sandwiches from Katz's or something like that. But even Katz's in New York is now like super commercialized and high output, right? And and like their pastrami is nowhere near as good as it was when I was a little kid and I first had a Katz's uh, pastrami sandwich. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Junior's Cheesecake. Like I'm trying to think of those things. Like, you know, is there an actual example of that? And the truth of the matter is that Maybe like, you know, a dish gets invented in a particular place and then maybe like during that time, that's the only place that does it. But I mean, you know, buffalo wings were invented at one bar, but buffalo wings are a part of being someone from Buffalo. You eat wings all the time, right? It's like people in Buffalo actually eat buffalo wings all the time. You know what I mean? Like seriously, I didn't they do. know that. That's actually really funny. Yeah, no, no, they really do. It's incredible. It's they really do. Like you know, it's like a whole cultural thing. People eat it all the time. Um, and you know, I think the you know best place for that question is also like New Orleans, right? Because New Orleans has so many. I was gonna. Spe- I was going yeah. to mention ex- like Cajun cuisine is another really interesting one because it's not authentically French, but it's yeah, and, and absolutely yeah. authentically like from the Bayou. Like there is no. Cajun is unquestionably its own. Maybe that's the thing about authenticity is that it's easier to call it's, something it, authentic it really when it is. has its, its own, own like, cuisine apart yeah, from French. Food. Like Bayou food you know is I mean? Cajun cuisine is entirely its own, not just its own flavors, but its own aesthetic. Like it's got a whole mythos surrounding it. When it comes to Cajun cuisine, you're right because like Cajun cuisine and Creole cuisine. I mean, Cajun and Creole cuisine are totally different. Right. It really is a different thing, even though they've kind of become synonymous and people use the terms interchangeably. They have different yeah. origins. Right. Like Cajun is about being Acadian. Right. That's about being from, uh, you know, uh, Quebec, essentially, yeah. from being yeah, yeah, yeah. being from Canada and Maine all these like and- French, these French influence places that are like very proud of their French heritage. That's what like Cajun cuisine is. 
Yeah, and and it also came. It literally came from there. The Brits expelled all of the French Acadians living in Quebec when they took control of the area. Yeah, and a bunch of people then went and migrated literally down to Louisiana, where people already spoke French because it had been owned by France at some point, right? So they got down there, and that's where you have the roots of Cajuns, right? Um, but Creole definitely also refers to like African slave influences, and yep. Caribbean influences, and almost Native American stuff going on in Creole cuisine. Um, but okay, when we talk about stuff that goes on in New Orleans, yeah, obviously it's so clearly influenced by French cuisine. But it is, you know, Louisiana Cajun and Creole cuisine is the most unique cuisine in the United States, right? Almost I would unquestionably. Agree with that, yeah. Right, yeah, and I mean the most distinct that, like, is that distinct, yeah. No, nobody does anything like that, right? It, we, they really don't, and um, you really can't uh, uh, you can't pinpoint another area in the United States where people eat so many dishes that are unique to their own. Location. That yeah, it's such a sweeping like it's Cajun like might as well be its own like. If you were looking, if you presented to me like the entirety of Cajun cuisine uh, and didn't tell me anything about where it was from, I would assume that it was just from a country, like its own thing, like an entirely. Yeah. It's so, oh, absolutely. <laughs> seriously. I don't think there's anything seriously. else in the United States that has that level of like, um, it's, it's like a holistic thing. It's occasion is like a lifestyle, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's like, it's a real, f- and here's the other thing that I was going to, uh, oh my God, I keep getting sidetracked, but I need, uh, let me, I'll finish this thought. So talking about Cajun cuisine, something that I wanted to bring up was also that like, you know, and I thought this was a, a good way that we could, we should probably round it out soon, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'll that we can, you can round make this it point out on And then this. I have one, one more thing that I want to say. I, and I also think you might want to extend on this to round it out. My kind of point would be that, um, one of the things about cuisine for me is also that, like, when I go and I see, um, so when I go to a restaurant, yeah, okay, I go to a restaurant, and very often, and I think that a lot of people who cook a lot or cook well uh, think like this. So, like, you'll go to, you know, let's say you go to some very regular restaurant. I don't mean to like shit on people's restaurants. I get that people like go out there and start restaurants, but you go to somewhere and you go, I can make that better or something like that. Right. Yeah. I could do that better than that. That's not really interesting. You yeah. Know, like, those whatever. are like not the places that I really want to eat. Unless yeah, it's and, like, and, and, and I, there's don't, something special right? about like Applebee's, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, we all have those things. Like I love Taco Bell. I'm dead ass serious. I love Taco Bell. Right. Dude, I know I was, that's Taco like, Bell is my Taco Bell is probably my favorite restaurant. Like that's not <laughs> it's close to my it's close to my favorite place on earth, dude. I really love Taco Bell. There's nothing wrong with that place. If you have a problem with it, get the fuck over yourself. Right? Yeah, I agree. Strong. Yeah. It, total. <laughs> totally. But so the thing is that um very often you kind of go, Oh, I can make this at home. And so when you go and you cook stuff at home to kind of like bring that to, you know, to the cooking technique, to the craft itself, so often, you know, I'm rarely a recipe guy. I go and I read four recipes and I go, I get the gist. I'm going to do this. I'm going to change it in this way. Right. Very rarely do I go, I'm going to make this like, you know, to exactly the way it needs to be made. So like I'll do that with baking because it's, you know, it's science more than it is cooking. Yeah. You know what I mean? You have to do it literally to the exact uh, weight, you know, and if you're doing it by volume, you're doing it wrong. Do it by weight. Right. But the thing is that um, 
uh, you know, you do that for baking and then very like difficult things, you know, like yeah, stuff that you have like no pate. Yeah, totally. And something that's hard. So like, uh, I don't mean to say that like cooking, uh, this is really not to shit on Mexican food because you know, I was about to say authentic Mexican food. I mean to say that um, uh, Mexican cuisine generally has some very refined cooking that goes on. But I can read a recipe for like a Mexican. Obviously it does. But like I can go and I can read a a couple of recipes for something that's in the Mexican uh, cuisine lexicon. And I can go, I have a general idea. I get it. I'm going to go and make my own thing. Right. I'm going to go and I'm going to make that. It's nothing that you haven't like seen before as far as technique goes. And, and so when, when you cook enough and you start to have kind of those sets of recipes that you don't need to either, you don't need to look up a recipe or when you go and you cook something, you don't follow the recipe exactly. You kind of riff the way that's the way that in many ways I cook. And I think that that compromises what people generally attach to as being authentic or traditional. So we were talking about Cajun, right? You know what yeah. I fucking, you know what I fucking love? Get like, Cajun seasoning, right? Like, you know, like out of the like mixes. Oh, yeah. In a bottle. Yeah. (laughs) In a bottle. Right. So uh, what I do is that I obviously make my own. Okay, it's it's super simple. It's outrageously simple. Right. It's the and, 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 you know, not to not to say that it's too simple. It's just perfect. Right. But when I make it, you know what I you know what I use instead of paprika as Kashmiri chili. Oh, okay. yeah, totally. Because why the fuck not, dude? Kashmiri chili has so much intense, good flavor. Yeah, 100%. Just enough, just enough like the heat. Spice, it's the not spices, a, yeah. It's it, takes a, it takes paprika's place perfectly and better, right? Yeah. So, and, and similarly, it's so funny I'm talking about Indian ingredients because my family also – my mother lived with an Indian family for like 10 years, so I eat Indian food all the time and, and you know, cook a lot of, uh, you know, Indian food that I learned from an old Indian woman and stuff like that, right? Yeah. But – so I keep uh, dried Kashmiri chilies, not just powder. I keep the whole chilies. Dude, you know, like soak them in water or soak them in vinegar and then use those in, when you're cooking Mexican food. It's so good, dude. Kashmiri chilies when they're dried. Oh, and I'm just gonna add that next chilies. time I make like my because I, usually I just I'll just toast a bunch of dried chilies that I get from the Mexican store and make yeah. my own chili powder with that. I'll add the cashmere chili next time. That's dude because it's so sweet. It's so good. It's yeah. really wonderful. Oh, that's just stuff. that's just smart is what it is. And it, that's it, just it's, smart it, cooking is what it is. <laughs> isn't that just smart cooking, right? And the thing is that it fits so perfectly into the place of other dried chilies that you would use in Mexican cooking, right? So the thing is, I thought that was a really good example of how, like, I can try to go and replicate traditional Mexican cuisine craft, right? Reconstituting um, dried chilies, making, you know, a deep, deep sauce to braisin or something like that, right? Um, Or, you know, like salsas and marinades, you know, all those things. I can understand that, like, craft and that technique, right? But once you start, like, putting all these other ingredients into it, yeah, I guess it's not technically traditional, right? But I'm still definitely cooking Mexican food, right? Just yeah, because I'm using cashmere chili is, you know, it fits perfectly into the I same I think when concept. you, like, when you care about authenticity, when you want to replicate the historicity of a dish, there's something, there's, like, that has an admirable quality. But, like, sometimes it has to take a backseat to just, like, delicious fucking food. <laughs> Seriously. You know what food needs to be? It doesn't need to be authentic. It doesn't need to be traditional. It needs to be fucking delicious. 
That's what <laughs> you know, yeah. So I'm gonna <laughs> like, seriously. I'm gonna go ahead and put a put a cap in it by. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm gonna be a little bit masturbatory here, and I'm just gonna read uh, the the conclusion to the article that I wrote that is gonna go up with this show. Perfect. Um, so I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Maybe authenticity really is just doing things the way they've always been done. Maybe it's about looking what a group of people did with sweat, time, and stoneware, and respecting them by carrying the torch and adhering to the old processes and ingredients, no matter how difficult. Or maybe authenticity is more than just a set of rules or a recipe to follow. Maybe it's a collective reflection on the past and a concerted effort to preserve our culinary and cultural traditions for the next generation, to innovate in quiet ways that allow us to share our history with the people we love and grow our own understanding of why things were done a certain way in the first place. Maybe authenticity is a participatory act, an act of sharing a communal inner light and watching it refract on the world over and over, changing our understanding of it each time. So, nice. recommendations? Uh, recommendations. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, no, perfect so, perfect way to end that. That was perfect. Instead of doing normal recommendations, what I yeah, want to do I was for this episode the same thing. Yeah, is totally go. talk about our uh, Taco Bell orders. <laughs> you, I bet you thought I was going to do something different. I don't know what you thought I was going to do, but you were fucking oh wrong. Oh my god, dude. perfect. Oh, I love it. No, I'm so okay with it. All right, so what's I'm your Taco so- Bell order? Okay. Um it like if I'm going all so I'm going to give you like four things, okay? <laughs> like yep, if, go if, for if it. yep, okay. Cheesy gordita crunch. Impossible Obviously. to avoid. Perfect. If you don't per- order a cheesy gordita crunch, you are a scumbag. Yeah, seriously, I don't trust you. No one should right it's perfect the way it all gets soft and chewy by the end yeah. by the time oh, yeah. you get to it oh my god dude it's really really good it's so good um i really like the cheesy potato burrito with the beef like beef sour dude. cream nachos is cheese, our order the, the same order oh keep my going god, dude. you got okay. one more you got one more to nail it okay i i really like chicken quesadilla but the I, I wanted to, I wanted to put in one alternate, which is the steak soft tacos with the avocado okay, sauce that they do. Oh my god! I didn't know about that. I did not. I was perfect. not aware of that technology. <laughs> they, that technology exists. Can't believe you love Taco Bell like this. This is perfect. All right. Dude, so what do okay. you get? My order again: cheesy gordita crunch, half pound cheesy potato burrito. Every time. <laughs> Dude, you just hear my Alexa talk to me. <laughs> my Alexa. Yeah, did, she still yeah. thinks I'm talking to her. <laughs> <laughs> stupid bitch. Alexa, stop. <laughs> I've got mine sitting right next to me too. I'm like I'm kind of waiting for her to like say some stupid shit. She's always getting out of line. And then third item for me is always either a um the potato loaded griller or the chipotle chicken loaded griller. Because the, oh loaded, the loaded grillers are, like, they, they always, like, press them just right. So it's, like, not quite crunchy, but, like, really nice and firm. And then everything on yeah. the inside is always... For some reason, there are some Taco Bell menu items, because I've done a lot of experimentation. Some Taco <laughs> Bell menu <laughs> items so are, like, inconsistent. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. if you order a soft taco sometimes... Or, like, a the worst offender, I think, is the... Um, like the steak quesadilla sometimes you'll just have fucking like three pieces of steak on one thing like it's just yeah there's just nothing worth it to it it's just the worst and then yeah these are all i think something that all of our menu items share in common is they're always consistent because they're things that you can't really they usually are like self-contained like the uh Mm -hmm. the cheesy gordita crunch isn't but like it's pretty much impossible to fuck up like it uh, also went from being ice yeah but the other thing is that the cheesy gordita like 
one of my most profound food memories, I swear to God, this is, I'm, I'm not even lying. This is so real, is eating a cheesy gordita crunch when I was like, God, you know, 10 or 11. Oh, it's right? been around forever. And it was like it's a seasonal thing. It was like yeah. a promotional item. It was and seasonal. It's... And I remember seeing the advertisement. And wanting yeah, to so go to I. Taco Bell and get it. And eating it and just fucking loving it. And wanting to go to Taco Bell every week while it was around. And then I remember my dad going to Taco Bell to get Taco Bell to go. Because, like, Taco Bell is, I don't know if you guys know this, it's actually the healthiest of the fast food things. Even when you get horse shit from Taco Bell, it's still not, like, <laughs> as full of, like, salt, fat, and preservatives. Actual literal horseshit. Yeah, yeah liter- it's not full of literal horseshit, right? But the thing is that... Um, uh, my dad went to go pick us up Taco Bell one time and they didn't have the cheesy gordita crunch. And one of my oh, most dude, that was memorable moments is that heartbreak of it not being available. And then 10 years later, some odd, it becomes it a constant back. thing. It yeah, came back as forever. a constant thing. The gordita it's just crunch the best. is immortal. It's one of my favorite dishes in the world. I love not, it. Yeah, 100% agree, dude. Cheesy yeah, I'm not is, even lying. I is, love it's that It's close shit. to a perfect food. It is close to a perfect... Every time I eat a cheesy gordita crunch, there's a part of me that's like, I'll never cook anything this good. And it's not upsetting, <laughs> I did, I totally it's not upsetting to me at all. I literally like, had I'm just that like, thought. I have accepted that as, like, that's just oh a part God. of me. That's I, a part of me now. <laughs> dude, I have had that thought. I went, I, you know, I would, I, I was like, should I go to Taco Bell? Like, you know, it's not really, I, I could make something that's better for me or that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth of the matter is, dude, it's uncomparable. I no. can't do it. Yeah. I don't know what they do to make it the way they do, but it's perfect. It's just incredible. So Jacob and I both recommend the cheesy gordita crunch. Go get a cheesy gordita crunch immediately. Like right now, dude. If you're not, then I don't know what, what you're whenever doing. you're listening to this, I guarantee you a Taco Bell's <laughs> open. Like a Taco Bell <laughs> is open and you could go to it right now and you're still listening to us talk. You're a fucking idiot. Go to Taco Bell. The fact Bell. that the Goodbye. fact that the two of us are here talking to you and not getting cheesy gordita crunches is the really fucked up part. So We're making a sacrifice for the viewers. Yeah, seriously. Um, on that note, though, I'm going to go to Cheesy Gordita Crunch. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Until next week, everybody. Gordita. You guys take it easy. Yeah, peace.